Truman, the following podcast may feature spoilers about your life. What the hell are you talking about? Who are you talking to? Welcome to Diabolical, the show where four long-suffering friends dissect films' most dastardly schemes, then try to improve them. I'm your host, Craig Morris. And this week's movie is The Truman Show. So, cue the sun, and let's get diabolical. As usual, I am joined by our panel of peril. Please introduce yourselves and tell us, what is your favourite reality TV show? Hello, I'm Adam, and my favourite reality TV show is Impractical Jokers. Nah, that's not a reality show. Of course it is. That's a prank show. That's different. Disqualifying. Get fucked. I was going to anyway, but we'll come to that. (laughs) You always do, and I get looking. (laughs) Hello, I'm Ben Steinson, and my favourite was The Osbournes. I'm Gareth Slade, and my favourite reality show is WWE Total Bellas. Total Bellas? When John Cena and Daniel Bryan were both on it. They're not on it. I thought you didn't like John Cena. I don't. But he's so weird on it. It's amazing. Is it scripted reality like the rest of WWE? or? Is it... Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's all bollocks. But <laughs> it's entertaining bollocks. As for me, my favourite reality show is Strictly Come Dancing. Later, they'll be competing for the title of this week's most diabolical. But first, let's take a closer look at this week's movie, The Truman Show. The Truman Show was an eye-opener for a viewing public that was used to seeing Jim Carrey contorting his rubbery mug in goofy comedies, but largely unfamiliar with a Carrey flexing his serious acting chops. Kickstarting a run of critically lauded performances from Carrey, including the clever eternal sunshine of the spotless mind and the self-indulgent man on the moon, director Peter Weir frames Carrey in a whole new light, tempering his signature exuberance without dampening his spirit a trick he had previously pulled off with the anarchic Robin Williams in 1989's Dead Poet Society. Weir's collaborations with Harrison Ford had also helped the legendary curmudgeon shake off his action serial star shackles and open him up to more thoughtful roles. While Weir was weaving his magic on The Truman Show in 98, Robin Williams was doing his best mash in notorious clunker Patch Adams, while Harrison Ford was slumming it in the predictable Six Days, Seven Nights. An early muse, Mel Gibson, was getting too old for Lethal Weapon 4. Meanwhile, Hollywood thought it was seeing double as flashy Michael Bay disaster Armageddon went head-to-head with Deep Impact, while Spielberg's gritty saving Private Ryan competed for box office with Terrence Malick's trippy ensemble The Thin Red Line, and Lindsay Lohan played twins in fun remake The Parent Trap. Sounds like a nightmare of a year. Yeah, it sounds like a, <laughs> like a right car crash. Ooh. Didn't enjoy Saving Private Ryan, no? Nah. You know? Oh, Saving Private Ryan was probably about 1998's Saving Grace, wasn't it? It so... should have been called Saving 1998. Well, there's tons of good films from 98, but I stuck to a theme. In World Events... On Good Friday, the governments of Britain and Ireland signed the Belfast Agreement. Later that year, the real IRA announces a ceasefire following the Omar bombing, giving hope for an end to the Troubles. The public was titillated by the impeachment of US President Bill Clinton, following an alleged affair with White House intern Monica Lewinsky. Hopes for the human colonisation of the solar system are raised as NASA discovers water on Earth's moon and the Jupiter satellite Europa. In the Netherlands... Pre-production began on the original version of the big brother of reality TV shows, Big Brother. And, at the 70th Academy Awards, Titanic wins 11 Oscars, including Best Picture. This was not in any way unprecedented, as Ben-Hur had achieved the same feat in 1959. What do you know? Lord of the Rings Return of the King wasn't the first? Uh, I can't remember. I think, didn't it win... Every category it was nominated in or something like that. I can't remember what it was. Something. Anyway. Well, you'd have thought you'd have researched it before you announced it in the freaking show. <laughs> you? 
Who? You. Well, I wasn't even doing Lord of the Rings. If I was doing Lord of the Rings... You talk about it in one of the episodes. properly. Yeah, but it wasn't, it wasn't the film we were talking about, was it? So I don't need to be, like, no, super accurate. You, <laughs> you can't just make up false news. <laughs> <laughs> the Truman Show drops us into the Stepford-esque suburban existence of unwitting reality show subject Truman Burbank, who is, unbeknown to him, under 24-hour surveillance by his adoring public, the star of his very own TV show, and a prisoner of unscrupulous producer Christoph, whose studio legally adopted the orphan Truman and raised him on air. So, everybody, what did you think of the movie in general? Pulling back the curtain or peeling back the foreskin, whichever you'd rather, I was going to give the film a miss this time because I thought I remember it well enough. So I wrote my plan. Mm Mm-hmm. And then uh, my son Dylan said he wanted to watch it. So we did watch it. And I was really glad that I did because it holds up so well. Yeah. There's not a boring moment in the entire film. Yeah. It's it's... just, it's brilliant. It's five out of five. Easy. It's perfect. Easy. I saw your letterbox review and I kind of knew what your answer was going to be. I watch it every year. We love it in this house. It's aged really well for me. What about you, Ben? Just three words from me. Carrie's sweet spot. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. There are loads of opportunities for his usual playful laughs, but you also get to see this more genuine, well-rounded character with a lot of vulnerability, and I think that's what he does really well. He's able to communicate this vulnerability on screen. Yeah. Yeah, I mentioned Eternal Sunshine earlier, and I think maybe that can be a bit dour at times. Exactly. But he does get to have a bit of fun in The Truman Show, but it always feels earned within the reality within the universe that the movie creates. He doesn't act out of character. Peter Weir selected him for the role because he saw his performance in another film. Ace Ventura. Which we've already done on this. Mm. So that's really interesting. And then I was looking at his career, and this film, like you're saying, is quite a heavy role, really for him, and it's a departure from what he's done before. And then his next film was Man on the Moon. And then the films get a bit darker from there and in and a bit more involved. For me, it was like it was like watching just the way he's developed over the year. And I just thought it was interesting from that point of view. Yeah. How about some thoughts about the movie and the movie making? It's quite a unique looking movie. If you've researched into any of it, you'll know that we wanted it to look like a documentary. You wanted it to look like TV. So you get a lot of interesting ratios that you wouldn't normally get in cinema and you get all the interesting camera angles all the hidden cameras fisheye lenses any thoughts about any of that for me it really works the point of reference for peter weir that that i read was uh he referred to home and away the australian soap opera (laughs) which you know when you think about it seaside town it's quite yeah quite appropriate the thing that i really like in terms of the filmmaking is in the cameras and the score, there's diegetic and non-diegetic elements. So you've got, like you say, the hidden cameras with the fisheye lenses, but you've got regular film cameras, which I don't think are supposed to be fictional Sea Haven reality show cameras. And then music-wise, you've got sort of the cheesy soap opera music, which is being played live in the Moon Tower by Christoph's composer. But then you've got the more dramatic non-diegetic music which is sort of the tense chase music like during the escape scene in the boat and i think it's it's really clever how clear which is which during the film you never it never confuses it's interesting film grammar because it's so easily understood yeah the composer in the booth is philip glass oh is it yeah pretty cool ah interesting you mentioned sea haven and I think mm. that town where they chose to shoot it was a character in of itself. It's hard to believe that's a real place. It's stunning. Yeah, it was bought by one guy with a vision and he made it like the seaside town of his imagination. A lot of the um, scale of it is digital. There's like a zoning law, one floor in every building in the town and they digitally made some of them taller and they added the moat around it to make it an island. But yeah, it's a town that a guy built. Wow. That's interesting. And I, I read the original incarnation of the script was actually set in New York, yeah. which would have been a very different 
aesthetic. Yeah, very, yeah. Yeah, some of the other details with that original Andrew Nichols script are uh, really quite depressing. I think the uh, <laughs> this script was changed for the better once Peter Weir came on board. I believe his reasoning was was basically nobody would want to watch this show. It's too fucking depressing. Yeah. Ed Harris tried to convince Peter Weir to give Christoph a hunchback, but um, he turned it down. <laughs> <laughs> a genuine well, no, apparently um, he did try it and he put the prosthetic on himself and he looked at himself in the mirror and he decided that it looked stupid is what I read. It sounds stupid without seeing it. <laughs> but I would have liked to have seen the ending that they had proposed. Which was... Oh, I don't know that one. What did they propose? Truman walks through the door as as he does. Yeah. But we see him in the world outside and uh, yeah. he, you see him walk into a, a Truman memorabilia shop and he's just, <laughs> you know, he's walking around it kind mm. of dumbfounded. It's always interesting to me what would happen to him once he leaves the dome because he's presumably the most famous man on earth. Everybody knows who he is. So what kind of life would that then be? Probably not much better than he was inside, yeah. Mobbed torn to death like the guy at the end of day of the dead the army guy <laughs> Choke <on> him! <laughs> i think that's why it's important that you don't see what happens to him when he leaves because you can imagine if you want that the resistance movement sylvia has thought about that and they've got some kind of life for him but you can also imagine that the world's beyond that and he'll find out that christoph was right and he should have stayed in where he was there's some great filmmaking tricks in there that I love like the camera inside this pencil sharpener mm. is really cool and he puts his pencil in there and it goes upside down oh, yeah. a lot of vignetting <laughs> that's really subtle there's an establishing shot of Sea Haven at the start that I think is a still image because the waves are so still and I think that's probably intentional to make it look fake and then performance wise not just Carrie I think Laura Linney is incredible mm. you know she's got a tough task there with that character uh, Noah Emmerich as Marlon Truman's friend. I was going to say, he's one of my highlights. Yeah. I think he's brilliant. Yeah, You really buy all his bullshit. And when he turns out to be one of the, the worst people there, you buy that as well. He does a great job of that duality. I really think he's great. And we've got to mention as well, Harry Shearer in his full yeah. shitty in sleaze mode. <laughs> what he tends to play. Yeah, I forgot he was in it, so that, that, that was a really nice surprise for me. Yeah. It was also nice to see Philip Baker Hall, is it? Yeah, yeah, the library cop. Yeah, Lieutenant Bookman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he's the network boss, isn't he? Listen here, buddy boy. <laughs> Please try copy. Put it in the cupboard. Last forever. I love it whenever whenever he pops up in something. Yeah, and Paul Giamatti as well. Obviously, a smaller role for him, but he does a lot with it. Yeah, he wasn't he wasn't stretched. No. But Ed Harris is outstanding as kind of the fanatical, yeah, tortured genius. I think he's yeah, he's great. The line that I always love to do with Christoph is when Harry Shearer is interviewing him and he says, thank you for uh, giving us uh, your time so generously. As we all know, you guard your privacy jealously. (laughs) Fuck you. (laughs) That's so good. Yeah, that's genius. Uh, So do you have any favorite moments or any little bits of business that you wanted to mention? I've got quite a few. Me too. I've got pretty big list i've just got two let's go with ben then because he's only got two one of my favorite things is that is the posters you see dotted around yeah and they're all kind of um subliminal messaging yeah like it's like an airplane being struck with lightning and it says it could happen to you the level of detail is crazy did you pick up on in that scene the travel agent when she comes in and she apologized for being late is wearing a makeup bib because she's just been prepared to go on set yeah yeah exactly yeah there's just some really great little touches you know the product placement is fantastic and then one kind of final part that i just loved was truman's gardening outfit <laughs> yeah it's just incredible it's got i don't know it's, a, it's almost like a lederhosen a gardening lederhosen so it's just great adam what about you got any uh standouts just at the end, when it's all ending and it's all cutting away to the the bar and places like that, and then the security guards are watching and then it finished, and they're like, oh, let's see what's on the other channel. Yeah, that was Dylan's favourite line. He loved that. He said that ending is perfect. Perfect <laughs> ending. I love it. You were talking about, you know, the little details. The one that I love there is the pin. How's it going to end that Sylvia wears uh, and, and how he reacts to that. I think that's really cool. So what about you guys? What's for your standouts? Uh, well, I got some lines to begin with. I've got 
you have the best job, Truman. You have a desk job. Yeah. It's kind of the sort of establishment reinforcement, keeping him in his place. It's absurd and funny. Yeah. The bus driver, yeah. when he grinds the gears to, <laughs> to break the bus, <laughs> it's just the way he's like, I'm sorry, son. And then he stands there just going, <sighs> just huffing and puffing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I love that he comes back at the end and he's on the <laughs> yeah. boat. Yeah. And, he and he's goes, grinding it again. I'm just a bus driver. <laughs> There's a few extras who pop up in different roles, like dotted out mm. as well. So that's really cool. Keeps the artificer, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, during the aforementioned interview with Ari Shearer's character and Christoph, referring to bringing Truman's father back into the show and how are you going to do that? Uh, Christoph just says, amnesia. Ari Shearer's like, brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> Most cliched. <laughs> redundant way of doing it. Very much a George Lucas problem solving. I thought about the same thing. Yeah. The last line that I had. I'm not quite sure why. I've just always liked the intent behind it is during the final conversation between Truman and Christoph uh, by the exit door. I think Christoph says, uh, I know what you're going to do before you do it or something like that. And Truman says, I never had a camera in my head, Tim. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what it is about that line that I love, but I really, really like that line. Yeah, it's a really powerful statement. Mm. What I love in that scene is when Christoph starts speaking with his booming voice of God from the clouds, mm. and Truman says, "Who are you?" and he says, "I am the creator of a television show." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> One of my favorite things to do to Emma is if she ever talks about any kind of consumer goods at all like if she says oh we should get this new kettle i go what the hell are you talking about who are you talking to (laughs) just every time which uh she loves Uh, (laughs) no she does uh i really love the scene when truman's trying to get on the the ferry to get out of sea haven and the ticket guy says to him one way or return and he's like, <laughs> and then the guy cranes out of the ticket booth to watch him. There's a good bit talking about people craning when the cops bring him back home after he's run off into the woods. And there's one cop talking to Lily Tomlin saying, oh, he's, he's lucky that we let him go here. But the other cop who isn't speaking is just like leaning around, <laughs> looking into the house, getting a good goosey gander <laughs> at the star of the show. I just thought it was a funny little detail. Yeah, there's loads of great stuff like that. I really like the sequence when he first starts questioning his world. He goes into the revolving door of his work and he just keeps going around it. And then he comes out, putting his arms out in traffic to see what will happen reminds me of the matrix like neo feeling like he might be the one i was gonna say it's sort of part of a group of films that came out around the millennium mm-hmm. questioning mm-hmm. the nature of, of our reality there's truman show the matrix 12 monkeys fight club vanilla sky there was just a glut of films uh, questioning reality wasn't there the interview with um christoph he says we accept the reality of the world with which we're presented it's as simple as that. That is 95% of people do that still <laughs> to this day. They just read something in a paper, watch something on the telly, hear something in gossip, and they just take that as verbatim without any sort of conscious thought about it and any follow-up or research into it. It can be easily led down a certain path. You talk about research after your Lord of the Rings fucking fiasco. <laughs> you just give it up. <laughs> Wizard should know better. All the audience bits that cut into it, I love. Like It kind of predicted Gogglebox as well, right? Which is not a show that I've watched, but I've seen trailers. But you get all these little glimpses into the, the lives of the people who, who watch the show. The guy that I really like in that is um, the guy who appears to be living in his bathtub. He sleeps in it. Yeah. In it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it must have been very cold in that bath after watching all the Truman Show. If he had a Japanese bath, he'd be able to uh, reheat it with the push of a button. <laughs> Not sure how I'd know that. We'll never know. It's a mystery, (laughs) and ever shall it remain. The other thing I really love, that is um, a little glimpse of the comedy Jim Carrey that we were used to, which is an improvised bit, is uh, Trumania, when he's drawing his space helmet on with the soap and all that stuff. There were a few different versions of that. There was uh, 
there's one on the uh, like making of documentary. Yeah, he he's a, an Arctic mountaineer, and he says uh, of his trip to the summit, the hardest part will be losing his thumbs, uh, not because it will affect the climb, but because it'll make signing autographs impossible. <laughs> what did he draw on the on the mirror for that? Kind of like a beard, a little hat. Maybe that's why they didn't use that one because it's not as obvious what he is. Uh, some favourite shots in the film, things that I genuinely think you could frame and put on a wall. First one is uh, Truman in his lovely gardening lederhosen and sticking his arse right into the camera <laughs> turning around with a smile on his face. It's I, was just just about, I was about to say pers- that as a joke to you there. Yeah. <laughs> when you said you completely was, I was going to say was it Truman's ass when he was gardening, but you really did say it. Yeah, that's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, mm. the the perspective of it, I think, is brilliant. How it feels, yeah, the frame. it's amazing. But then I've I've got some more serious ones, I suppose. I've got Truman sat on the beach with his back to the camera at night with lightning uh, cracking over the sea. Uh, I think that's incredibly striking imagery. Ooh. striking thunder, lightning. Oh, oh. Good. <laughs> Christoph touching the massive screen of Truman's sleeping face with the night vision camera, just filling the, the frame. And there's something quite simultaneously beautiful and disturbing about yeah, that. exactly, yeah. I think. No, just, just creepy. <laughs> just really creepy. And finally, when the boat crashes into the outer wall, uh, pierces the edge, and just the shot of Truman's hand reaching out and the shadow reaching out to meet his own hand i thought reminded me of the sistine chapel yeah and his posture in that whole the bit that follows as well where he's hanging onto the the mast and one arm up against the wall and his head bowed is really powerful all right well uh, i have some trivia then so at breakfast truman has a bottle of vitamin d because obviously there's no natural sunlight within the dome of his studio, so he doesn't oh, get any. Very so, good. Yeah, very good. Yeah, very cool. Siskel and Ebert apologised for slating Carrie during their review of Ace Ventura. That was the role, obviously, that we said before that got him cast, and that's because Carrie reminded Peter Weir of uh, Charlie Chaplin. Really cool life-imitating art thing. Peter Weir had originally planned for cinema screenings to cut the projection at one point and switch to live footage of the audience to make them feel like they were part of the experience. And at one point, he considered playing the role of Christoph himself, which would have been quite meta. In the original trailer for The Truman Show, when the studio light falls from the sky, there's a very visible tear in the sky dome that then sort of seals up, and they cut that from the, the movie, obviously. Some uh, alternate reality casting things that could have happened and some crew as well. So we we could have had a different version of this movie from another director. Uh, Brian De Palmas? Yeah, Tim Burton was considered as well. Barry Sonnenfeld, Terry Gilliam, Steven Spielberg. Imagine how different these films would have been. I know, and even the the weirdest one for me, David Cronenberg was apparently considered for director as well. Jeez, well... With with the initial script, you can imagine that actually, yeah, like the darker New York script. Considered for the role of Truman was Robin Williams, Gary Oldman, and Samuel L. Jackson. When you absolutely positively yeah. gotta leave every studio. <laughs> Considered for the role of Christoph were Jack Nicholson and Jonathan Price, and actually cast in the role of Christoph was Dennis Hopper, but he fell out. Right, uh, yeah. Yeah, he fell out uh, with Peter Weir and left the production. So all of Ed Harris's scenes were shot oh. after Carrie had wrapped. So they, they never met. Oh, well. Yeah. So is is Carrie reacting to Dennis, Dennis Hopper. Hopper's voice? Yeah. Oh, well. Or maybe, you know, someone on the crew. Yeah. Someone just shouting delivering the line. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That. But he presumably was picturing Dennis Hopper when he <laughs> spoke back. Dennis Hopper's face on a stick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In terms of product placement, the old ladies who are watching the show wear the same clothes as Meryl. I think it's a nice little detail. And the beer that Marlon drinks is served at the Truman Bar. There's a beer pump just right in the bottom corner of the screen with the same label on it. Like a blink and you'll miss it kind of thing. That, that, that detail's amazing. Yeah, but they yeah. say yeah, everything in the show is for sale, right? Right, yeah, including her clothes, yeah. There's a really fun 
like a fake making of Truman Show that I saw that has Harry Shearer hosting it. And one of the details that comes up in it is that the twins who bump Truman into the ad, Ron and Don, they're the assistant directors of the Truman Show. So they're always on set directing the action, which is kind of cool. In that same special, Harry Shearer asks Meryl about being financially compensated for each time she has sex with Truman. And she complains that she did not clear that question. And that, that's where that little bit of the interview ends. And again, in that special, uh, Marlon reveals that Christoph wrote a storyline where he would have a brain tumour. And he wrote that during his contract negotiations. So when the contract negotiations were settled, he wrote in that the tumour was benign. Which is a nice little detail of Christoph being an absolute piece of shit there. It's revealed in that that Hannah Gill, who plays Meryl, is the second richest woman in the world. So you imagine her compensation has made her very rich. And there's one more detail in the TV special, which I won't mention just yet. I'll tell you about it later. Because for this week only, maybe, even though I'm hosting, I had a little think about what my plan would be. So Don't want to hear it. Do not want to hear it. (laughs) He's just going to give himself the victory, isn't he? You want your cake and you want to fucking eat it too. I can't give myself a victory. It's just for fun. And I just want to no, tell you no. because I've thought about it before. I, I will so. leave this podcast right now. <laughs> tell you what, we'll, we'll log off. That's you it. Can just oh, that Craig. Well done, Craig. <laughs> <laughs> You'd love that. You can just talk to yourself and, you know, bash one out while you're reading it out to yourself. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> what are we like, eh? <laughs> story begins as things start to come crashing down around Truman's storefront suburban life. Literally, in the form of a studio light that seemingly falls to earth from the heavens. From there, an increasingly erratic Truman tests the bounds of his reality, disturbing the rote and rehearsed goings-on of his neighbours, seeking out the weird truths behind the curtain, and attempting to venture out of town, stopped at every turn by the hand of God, as conducted by Christoph and his production staff from their base in the artificial skies above the sprawling studio world. Spurred on by the memory of a lost love, and the only genuine person Truman has ever known, and undeterred by Christoph's emotionally and physically manipulative machinations, Truman finally makes his escape under the cloak of night, bravely venturing out onto the open sea he's been conditioned to fear, and shouting down the apparent voice of God, yet again Christoph. The movie ends as Truman makes contact with the painted bounds of his world, stepping out of his prison into an uncertain beyond. False imprisonment, gaslighting and attempted murder were all great for the ratings. So what did we think of Christoph's scheme? Hold on to your hats, guys. 11 florets of broccoli. No way. I've never, ever kind of looked at it in that way as as an evil plot kind of way before. And obviously we do this podcast specifically looking at evil plots. And so it kind of, I guess I framed it differently in my mind. And I realized how freaking cruel it was. Oh man, it's a cruel, cruel plot. Everything they do, condition him against, uh, you know, he's lost his dad, condition him to, to fear the sea, to fear adventure. Oh, I was, uh, it was upsetting. It's like a real evil, right? It's not like a... Uh chewing the scenery bond villain type of thing it's, it's not cartoony uh, mm. at all it's pure evil i i would say um christoph doesn't see it as evil and it's not it, it's not him evil people rarely do right deliberately yeah that's the worst thing about it i think yeah but i think i think the 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 definitions of good and evil and putting people in one camp or the other or whatever and saying stuff like that whereas it's christoph is he thinks he's an artist and he's creating art with that, isn't yeah. he? And he, the, he? This show is his masterpiece. He doesn't understand that there's people getting hurt along the way. I think he does understand that he's hurting people. I just think he doesn't care. Yeah. It's the price of art to him. Yeah, yeah. but he puts his art so high above everything else. He thinks because he's bringing this to the world and everybody says, oh, we watch a Truman show. We Sometimes we watch it to go to sleep and all that kind of stuff. I think he he thinks yeah the end justifies the means oh, necessary evil if, in a way yeah 
but it, it, the the fact that he brings so much joy to the world cancels out the bad. I think as pretentious as he is, he's not under any illusions that what he's creating is is high art. You know, he he points cameras at Truman and Truman creates the magic. But he wears a beret. Yeah, but he's also a classic sort of sellout, right? He'll do the the cheapest shit for ratings, like soapy stuff. It's 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 like a soap opera kind of plot. We spoke before about his comment about how do you explain the father's absence, amnesia, is classic soap opera crap. Yeah, I would disagree with that. I think he, for him, for him to do that, he believes he's doing something that's that's very very worthwhile. I don't whether you want to class it high art or not, but I think he. He, he thinks he's given a gift to the world, and so that's why the end justifies the means to him. I think um, the key to, to what he thinks of the show himself may be the way that Ed Harris plays his direction of the scene, reuniting Truman with his father. He's like conducting it like it's a symphony, which I would class as quite a arty, vaguely pretentious thing. So I, I think he thinks that he's making something sort of award-worthy in that moment. Mm. and quite arty yeah i'm saying i know that he's pretentious and i think that he he acts like a an artist i just don't think that he could possibly think that that soap opera crap that he writes is actually good i think he just doesn't think a lot of the audience i think he's just a cunt basically Okay, so this is the part of the show where our panel of peril compete for the title of this week's Most Diabolical, and with it, the honour of choosing next week's movie and hosting the show. Christoph tried to keep Truman imprisoned in a false reality and manipulate his life by any means possible in order to maintain ratings, but the plan was unsuccessful. Ben, what would you have done differently? Thank you for asking. In my world, you have nothing to fear. These are the words Christoph says moments before Truman steps into the outside world. They very neatly capture the reason why Truman longed for something more, and ultimately how he learned the truth about his existence. Truman's life was perfect. The perfect house in the perfect town with the perfect wife. Perfect, 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 perfect. <laughs> or was it? No, it wasn't. Like Prospector Pete's wagon going nowhere on the Oregon Trail, he was stuck in a rut. His life lacked adventure, it lacked spontaneity, it lacked purpose. He was desperate for stimulation, and tedium caused his mind to wander. A dangerous thing indeed. That's why I would have intervened much differently. Once Truman started to show signs of yearning for something more, I would stage a cataclysmic event that would turn his perfect world into a nightmarish hellscape. It would be my finest hour. As Truman stares longingly at his weird, mashed-up Bride of Frankenstein magazine pick, apocalyptic clouds gather overhead. Kakrak! Thunder booms. Cue screams of the innocent in the distance. Truman runs for the comfort of his wife's bosom. No such luck. She lies, full of holes like fleshy Swiss cheese in a pool of ruby red fondue. Meryl, Meryl, who did this? cries Truman. With her dying breath, Meryl raises a shaky finger and points towards the open front door. Truman's eyes follow. He sees LED-eyed androids running amok and mercilessly executing his neighbours. Meryl, now expired, Truman dashes to the front door for a closer look. It's carnage, death and destruction everywhere. Truman, Truman, calls a familiar voice from somewhere down the street. It's Lauren slash Sylvia, his long lost love, or at least a convincing facsimile. Help me, Truman, she cries. Her shouts seemingly attract a nearby android who grabs Lauren and proceeds to tear her limb from limb. Truman rushes to help. He grabs a nearby bin lid and smashes it into the robot. It drops Lauren and falls to the ground in pieces. Truman cradles Lauren in his arms, but it's too late. She doesn't have much time left. Avenge me, 
Truman, comes her weak, raspy voice. Promise me you'll never leave Sea Haven, the home of our love. You must stay, survive, and destroy these evil robots who are intent on wiping out humanity. Promise me, Truman. Promise me. <laughs> Truman would naturally promise as Lauren dies in his arms. Vow made, Truman would never leave. 100% of his attention would be on staying alive and getting revenge on those pesky androids for his lover's grisly death. What's more, the show would now transform from a dull soap opera into a balls-to-the-wall action epic, a surefire rating sensation, if ever there was. So, is his wife actually dead? No, no, it's all makeup, isn't it? What kind of makeup are they using to fill her full of holes, like a fleshy fondue? <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, very good makeup. Very good makeup. <laughs> good. The, best, good. the best money can buy, Gaz. I'm satisfied with that answer. We alluded earlier to the darker original script, and there was a scene where Truman was supposed to witness a rape uh, that he would walk away from without helping. And the the actors involved in the scene would then stop acting it out and say to each other, oh, thought he'd help us out. Uh, so in, in that version, that Truman was meant to be a bit of a uh, kind of a coward, I guess. So do we think that he would really spend his life fighting androids in a, in a sort of Terminator-style post-apocalypse? Yes. In the name of love, anything is possible. <laughs> Fuck off, Bono. Well, I couldn't have said that any better myself, Turner. <laughs> But if we're, if we're going to quote versions of a script that were never made, I mean, no, I just thought that that was an interesting. Uh, so that was an interesting bit of business. Still, the version that we get in the movie, I'm asking, do you, do you really see him having lived like a an idyllic suburban life, suddenly becoming like a an action guy, the guy who has failed to get on a boat because he's scared of the water and hasn't left his wife because he's comfortable in his life, and now that the robots show up, that he's going to become an action star. But look what he did for Lauren in the in the film. The people who watch from home, that they would accept the Truman Show becoming an action show. Oh, and they they love it. We all love an action film. Okay. okay. Uh, Adam, let's hear from you then. The scene in the film where there is a staged leak at the nuclear power plant got me thinking... That's a good idea, but it's just wasted on a leak just to contain an agitated Truman from escaping. As Truman is getting older and it's clear he's becoming more suspicious about the world he lives in, Christoph and the psychologist working on the show realise something needs to be done to divert Truman's attention from travelling outside of Sea Haven. They begin to plot. Over the course of a few weeks, the news in Sea Haven reports on various strange animals being found, some dead, some alive, including a suspicious three-eyed fish. Speculation begins about where these animals come from. Fiji? Who knows? Eventually, after more animals are found, the cause is traced to... a leak at the Sea Haven nuclear power station. Oh my goodness, who could have thought it? Immediately, Sea Haven is sealed off, and scientists with Geiger counters fill the town. There is a curfew from dusk till dawn, so no one tries to escape the darkness. The residents of the town are clearly distraught and worried about the crisis affecting their health and lives in general. The mayor assures them all that help is on the way and he will make sure his citizens are kept safe. Truman is obviously worried, but satisfied that all the people in the town are affected by this terrible nuclear leak and they're in it together. Animals continue to go missing and strange mutations continue to be found. Although no one is allowed out, strange loud noises can be heard coming from the beach, and the strong odour of rotten fish fills the town. Truman, unable to control his curiosity, vows that he has to find out what is happening on the beach. Truman sneaks out late at night while his wife is asleep and heads down to the beach, running the usual gauntlet of hiding from police and army on patrol, carefully staged by Christoph and his henchmen. He eventually arrives at the beach and hides under the pier where he lies in wait, hoping to get to the bottom of what has been going on. Eventually, as the tide retreats, hundreds of dead, stinking fish are swept up onto the beach, causing a tremendous smell. A secret government agency descends onto the beach to clear up any radioactive fish. Truman, now convinced of a government cover-up about the leak, 
speaks at a town meeting chaired by the mayor and the Federal Fish and Wildlife Agency. Showing evidence of pictures and videos, the mayor and agency are forced into a humiliating omission that the town is hopelessly irradiated and that the town must remain sealed off from the outside world for the next 15 to 20 years, while a population undergo treatment and the surrounding area is cleared of radiation. The news is met with huge shock and anger, but residents are assured that they will be allowed to go on their daily lives normally while being monitored for any signs of decreasing health. While many are devastated and some anger remains, Truman is designed to a fairly normal life, at least for the next 15 to 20 years. Okay, so your plan is basically that nothing happened. (laughs) (laughs) No, his plan is the Simpsons movie. What did we say about copying plans from other things that one time? Not the Simpsons movie. Get fucked. <laughs> no, I think that's a that's a really good plan. Like a kind of cross between. It is a bit of Simpsons movie. I think that's a good point. But it's not. It's not exactly the Simpsons movie, is it? And uh, a little bit of Chino. Particularly the three-eyed fish. But yeah, don't... obviously the three-eyed fish. No, I'm, I'm just joking. I thought it was a, gr- a great plan too. Okay, Gareth, please give us your plot. In the Truman Show, we could say that Truman himself is a prisoner and the actors that populate Sea Haven are his guards. To understand my plan, we need to have a fairly deep dive into real-world psychology and the infamous Stamford Prison experiment. Without spoiling it, have you guys already heard of the experiment? It rings a bell. Well, I'm about to fill you in. ooh uh. <laughs> Said the actor to the bishop. <coughs> Is that what the Stanford Prison Experiment was? <laughs> Don't drop your soap, boys. You're getting filled right hey. in. The Stanford Prison Experiment <laughs> was designed to examine the effects of situational variables on the participants' reactions and behaviours in a two-week simulation of a prison environment. Stanford University psychology professor Philip Zimbardo led the research team who ran the study in the summer of 1971. Participants were recruited from the local community with an ad in newspapers offering £15 a day to male students who wanted to participate in a, quote, psychological study of prison life. Volunteers were chosen after assessments of psychological stability and then randomly assigned to being either prisoners or prison guards. Those volunteers selected to be guards were given uniforms specifically to de-individuate them and instructed to prevent prisoners from escaping. The experiment officially started when prisoners were arrested by real Palo Alto police. Over the following five days, psychological abuse of the prisoners by the guards became increasingly brutal. I'm just going to list some of the many red flags that occurred over the five days. Day one. In the Stamford County Jail, they were systematically strip-searched, given their new identities, which were just identification numbers, and uniform. Prisoners wore uncomfortable, ill-fitting smocks without any underwear and stocking caps, as well as a chain around one ankle. Guards were instructed to call the prisoners by their assigned numbers sewn on their uniforms instead of by name, thereby dehumanising the prisoners. Day 2. At 2.30am, the prisoners rebelled against guards' wake-up calls of whistles and clanging of batons. Prisoners refused to leave their cells to eat in the yard, ripped off their inmate number tags, took off their stocking caps and insulted the guards. In response, guards sprayed fire extinguishers at the prisoners to reassert control. The three backup guards were called in to help regain control of the prisoners. Guards removed all of the prisoners' clothes, removed mattresses, and sentenced the main instigators to time in the hole. Day 3. In order to restrict further acts of disobedience, the guards separated and rewarded prisoners who had minor roles in the rebellion. The three spent time in the good cell, where they received clothing, beds, and the food denied to the rest of the jail population. After an estimated 12 hours, the three returned to their old cells that lacked beds. Guards were allowed to abuse their power to humiliate the inmates. They had the prisoners count off and do push-ups arbitrarily, restricted access to the bathrooms, and forced them to relieve themselves in a bucket in their cells. Day 4. Prisoner 819 began showing symptoms of distress. He began crying in his cell. 
A priest was brought in to speak with him, but 819 declined to talk and instead asked for a medical doctor. After hearing him cry, Zimbardo reassured him of his actual identity and removed the prisoner. When 819 was leaving, the guards cajoled the remaining inmates to loudly and repeatedly decry that 819 is a bad prisoner. Day 5. The inmates were granted visitation rights. Zimbardo and the guards made visitors wait for long periods of time to see their loved ones. Only two visitors could see any one prisoner, and only for just ten minutes while a guard watched. The parents grew concerned about their son's well-being and whether they had had enough to eat. Some parents left with plans to contact lawyers to gain early release of their children. Day 6. Experiment terminated after Christina Maslach, a professor from Berkeley, visited to evaluate the conditions. She was so upset to see how study participants were behaving that she confronted Zimbardo and he ended the experiment. The Stanford Prison Experiment has been referenced and critiqued as one of the most unethical psychology experiments in history. The harm inflicted on the participants prompted universities worldwide to improve their ethics requirements for human subjects and the experiments to prevent them from being similarly harmed. Other researchers have found it difficult to reproduce the study, especially given those constraints. If you are interested, the BBC, with Haslam and Riker, replicated the experiment in 2002 with differing conditions, variables, and very different and interesting results. All of this context is to say that the human mind is surprisingly susceptible to authoritarianism. See also Stanley Milgram's post-war experiments. So what better way to encourage Truman to stay inside the dome, his own personal prison, than to put him in a position of power? It needn't be anything as prone to abuse as in the Stanford prison experiment. It could just be something along the lines of mayor, sheriff, something like that. Something with enough power to foster a touch of corruption, but not so much as to bring out a truly dark side and cause ratings for the Truman Show to tumble. All Kristoff has to do is make the fella happy with his own lot in life, even if it should come in part at the expense of others, and he will stay within the confines of Sea Haven to maintain his power, his privilege, and his delicious Mococo drink. All natural cocoa beans from the upper slopes of Mount Nicaragua, no artificial sweet. Yeah, I had heard of that experiment. I wasn't I didn't know the name of it, but I've heard about the conditions before. It's been largely sort of dismissed in the years following it because mm. nobody's been able to replicate the results of it and since it's come out the they the like people were told like the guards were told to act tough the guy that was thrown out for um or managed to get out he, he pretended to be psychotic or something like that but really he just wanted to get out and revise for an exam or something because he just couldn't be lost he wanted to get out early it's been it's a Netflix film about it as well. What well, the questions that I would have for you would be so you you mentioned that some of the positions of power you might put Truman in would be like sheriff or mayor. Do you think that Truman would be interested in pursuing a, a career in in politics or law enforcement? Well, you just you you sort of uh, imprint that on him like they did with the drowning, don't you, from a young age? You you give him a little sheriff's badge and a hat and a little pop gun and you you sort of play on the telly sheriff shows or or whatever it might be to plant that yeah. seed in his young mind. But you don't know you don't know at that point that he's gonna his mind's gonna wander, right? But in my scenario you do know. Ah that <laughs> makes sense. I think that's valid because uh, you know, knowing about that experiment, you might, before you start your Truman Show experiment, you might start thinking about those kind of variables and, and what. Sounds like Gaswood. Twisted. I had, I had more, one question and one comment. <clears throat> the question is, yeah. is what, what... de-individuate a real word? <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> okay. And... My comment is, I really like the idea of making Truman into a sheriff and then turning the show into like a weekly Murder, She Wrote type thing. <laughs> Could have guest stars. The Truman Show, starring Truman Burbank as the sheriff. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so to recap, 
I think we had similar ideas. We wanted to give Truman a purpose in life from from Gaz and Ben. So, Ben, uh, you wanted to change the Truman Show from a fifties style suburban soap opera into kind of Terminator post apocalypse world and have Truman his purpose in life to avenge uh, the the riddled corpse of corpses rather of his uh, lost loves. And uh, Adam, you had a plan to more convincingly cut off Sea Haven from the rest of the world by uh, having a, a nuclear fallout situation where Truman literally couldn't leave due to the kind of lockdown. And Gaz, uh, you wanted to put Truman in a position of power and authority uh, to give him a, a purpose in life and something else to concentrate on. And uh, believe it or not, my favourite plan and the host of next week's show is Adam with his brilliant uh, lock-off Sea Haven from the rest of the world radiation plan. I think it it really, in, in the other plans, you have to do a lot of thinking about how Truman would react. But with Adam's plan, doesn't matter how he reacts, he can't leave, right? And he he would uh, have to accept the reality he was in there. So I think that's the one that holds the most weight. And I know you don't want to hear it, but I do, because <laughs> I like the sound of my own voice and the things that I think about. So my plan... So um, what I thought would be an interesting thing to do, and I thought this before I saw this, um, make, this fake making of documentary, is so they know Truman wants to go to Fiji. It's all he talks and thinks about. So why don't they get like a an aeroplane, let him sit on it, but like drug his coffee or whatever, wait till he's fallen asleep, change some of the set around him and wake him up in Fiji and go, here you go. And then he goes around looking for Sylvia and she's not there. And that's it. His, his What's he going to do then? He just keep thinking about her and, and that's the end of that. And as it turns out, they shot that in the um, book, didn't they? They made an aeroplane on a gimbal, yeah, yeah. And they were going, "We've got to get the Fiji set ready for Truman," and it's a deleted scene. So I, I thought about it, and then I saw it in that, and I was like, "Oh, okay, yeah. that's interesting." They did think about it because it's such an obvious, like, kind of, uh, you know, Mister T mm. on a helicopter idea that I was yeah. surprised that they they didn't think of it. So, Adam, what film will we be dissecting and improving upon next week? Next week's film is 1982's Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan. Now listen, I'll go in with an open mind. I'll go in with an open mind. (laughs) (laughs) And that about wraps it up for this week's episode. Thank you for listening. And if you like what you heard, please subscribe. Leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Give us five stars on Spotify, Google, or wherever else you might get your podcasts. It would also help to tell your friends in person and on social media. Help spread the word. Maybe you think listening to Diabolical is just a great way to avoid real human contact. And so is interacting online. So why not grace a friend's timeline with a link to this very episode, or even one of the better ones? To catch all the latest from the Diabolical podcast, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at DiabolicalPod, and on Facebook at Diabolical. Don't forget to join us next week. We'll be diving into the starry world of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Oh, and in case I don't see ya, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. <laughs>